you for being here. I just want to say that um, for me, I don't know why everyone else is here, but for me, I am in part sitting in solidarity with a lot of people who are walking today. And um, although there may be many who frame that as an um, as a protest, which in many ways it is a protest, but also it is an affirmation of beings people, human beings, that are being thoughtlessly cast aside in the language that we've heard. So, may we today hear and there affirm everyone. the Buddha's mother on the altar next to the Buddha right now. In the stories, she died seven days after his birth. So she's the first hero of the Buddhist stories, not the Buddha himself. And this is Kuan Yin, who is um, the Bodhisattva of compassion that we represent in the feminine. We'll be bowing to them today. So when I was thinking about what to, because this was planned, this uh, sit was planned before the future unfolded. And so what to talk about. So emboldening the Bodhisattva heart in demanding times. And in thinking about, can I have a clock? In thinking about those, um, that phrase, I was thinking about the two words, or three words, emboldening, bodhisattva, and demanding. And um, emboldening, that word bold, apparently the root goes back to an Indo-European root that means to swell. To swell, or to grow, or to blow up. Like with air. And uh, bodhisattva, for those of you who aren't aware with that, of what that term means for us, bodhisattva is the, is the goal, the manifestation of practice that we value in our tradition, which is to live for the liberation of all beings. Liberation from suffering of all beings. And demanding, so this root manned, I love this root in particular. It's in words like mandate, mandatory command, all of that. And in Latin, it shares two kind of facets of what it means. One is to order someone to do something, like a command. The other is hand. And um, so like in Spanish, mano is related to mand, which means hand. And part of the reason for that is because when that was used originally, it was an understanding that to give an order was to 
hand the responsibility for an action from one set of hands to another set of hands. It was to entrust another set of hands with carrying something out. So a demand for us is now something is in our hands. And now we are responsible for carrying it out. And what is that carrying out going to be? But in the way that we use demand on a regular basis, I mean, really, it's, there are no times that are not demanding. Certainly, there is something that's happening now. There are lots of ways to look at what's happening. And there are things that are deeply painful for me when I look at what's already happening in just a day. But, and not to take away in any way from the importance of, of this moment in time. But a lot of times, you know, for a bodhisattva, there is never not demanding times. There is never a time where the suffering of the world is not being put in our hands to respond to. That's never not true. And what we may personally consider demanding are what we have allowed into the space that we understand as who we are. So now this affects me in a very direct way, so it's demanding because it touches who I am. But who I am, who I think I am, is this very limited little tiny thing, right? If we let that grow then now other things are who I am. Are the child soldiers in our country that we call gangs, are they me? If they are, then we've had demanding times for a while. Is the slave trade of women all over the world, is that me? Well, if so, then we've had demanding times for some time. Our coal miners in Appalachia who have had their entire environment wrecked by massive corporations and left with no way of understanding what to do next. Are they me? And if we are, then we've had demanding times for a while. So for in this emboldening, this swelling of the bodhisattva heart, in the swelling of the bodhisattva heart, in the growing of it, we begin to include. We begin to include other people that before were not me and now are me. People that I didn't want to listen to. People whose voices were si have been silenced for scores, hundreds of years. I was on a radio show the other day, and, and, and I was speaking about this a little bit, and someone called in and said, well, I don't think it's time to listen to, to, to these other viewpoints. It's time to fight. And I, I don't disagree with, in any way, that it's time to stand up, and, and it's always time to stand up. <laughs> I make our voices known. That's always true. But... Um, but it's an interesting human habit to be able to say, 
that I'm not willing to let another person's reality in, but I expect them to be changed by mine. And I live with the expectation that they should be changed by mine. But not with the balanced expectation that I should be changed by theirs. And all of this is, you know, all of this within the Dharma is really rooted in a deepening understanding. You know, the Buddha's insight, his major insight, is what we call dependent co-arising. This idea that um, if something happens, if something arises, another thing arises in relationship to it, and that relationship is the nature of everything that is. Something arises, something else arises in relationship to it. And we never can locate, we can't locate a single thing for which that is not true. And karma is the way we're conditioned with the way that um, this self-grasping conditions us in a particular way to build that self-grasping more and more and more and more. We grow that ego. And so what we understand as liberation or enlightenment or liberation from suffering is not punching through to some super transcendent being that is beyond conditioned reality or the way everything is interrelated. It's becoming very, very clear about what that conditioned reality is, about what its nature is about how it's related and how things affect each other and what the nature of things are that we can't find any permanent self in me or in you or in things. Everything comes and goes. That they're, perma- that they're impermanent and that any attempt for that life to be permanently satisfactory fails again and again and again and again and again. So we accept that suffering is a part of existence, not because we're not going to do anything about it, but because if we don't accept that, then we spend our, in, our waking hours neurotically trying to not feel pain, doing anything we can, and usually, in doing so, creating more suffering. So we have to actually accept that truth in order for suffering to end. It sounds very odd at first, but believe me, as you do this longer, it becomes very, very clear. That settling into the acceptance of suffering is actually necessary for responding to suffering so that we can end it. So there's a... um, I was thinking about a passage in the Genjo Koan which was written by Dogen when I was thinking about all of this and how to be, because, you know, in a way, when we say, how do we embolden the heart, Bodhisattva heart, I mean, one thing that we want to hear, and I I like this too, I want to hear somebody tell me super encouraging words so that I can be motivated and then go, you know, and everything will be great. Um, But that lasts for a little while, and then then it's not there anymore, and then what? So, 
when I was thinking about this, I was thinking really the, 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 the Buddhist way, especially the Zen way, is it isn't, um, it isn't about encouraging words. It's about training ourselves. It's about training ourselves to be particular beings in the world. A bodhisattva just doesn't become a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva trains to be a bodhisattva. So um, there's a there's a writing by a Zen teacher called Ehe Dogen, who lived in the lived and wrote and practiced in the 13th century. And um, he's considered the founder of this tradition of Zen that we're in. And he wrote, um, when Dharma does not, this is in the Genjo Koan, which if you've not heard of it, if you stick around long enough, you're going to hear about it all the time. It's kind of a big deal for us. Um, But there's a paragraph that I thought of today. When Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When Dharma, meaning the the, the teachings of awakening reality. And also, it, it's teachings, but it's also the realization of the way things are. When this doesn't fill your entire body and mind, you think everything's already sufficient. Now, this sounds like a weird sentence until we reflect on how we actually are when we are com- have complete loyalty to ego. We think we've figured everything out. We know the truth. We got the right answers. Um, everybody else has the wrong answers. You know, um, we're kind of complete in the loyalty to that ego. Even we might have doubt every once in a while. Surely we might even be miserable now and again. But it's we still got it. We know the limits of the universe. Okay. But next sentence. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. Now the missing is, a, is, is, because we want this to be the other way, right? We want to be missing something, and then we want to do spiritual practice, and then we want to be totally fulfilled and complete and total. We don't want to be told that there's something missing. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to realize that there's a bunch of stuff missing. So, so he goes on to say what's missing. For example, when you sail out in a boat to the midst of an ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. When we're in the middle of a boat, in the middle of an ocean, and we look around, our reality is a circular reality. That's all we see. Okay? And when we're not filled with realization in the Dharma, we think that's our complete life. That's what's there. So he's talking about our perception, right? He's talking about the way we perceive the world from the position of ego. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It's only looks, it only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. All things are like this. 
though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, myriad things in Zen means everything, all phenomena that arises, you must know that although they may look round or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is not so only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. So what does all that mean? If you keep the ocean analogy going, right, and I'm sitting in the ocean is everything that there is, and everything I understand is on the surface of the ocean. And then a bubble arises. There's a bubble on the surface of the ocean. And that bubble I'm going to explain from my position, from what I know, from everything that's come before. And that's what's going to describe how that happened. I'm not going to take into account the infinity of causes and conditions that we cannot possibly understand or see in every moment. We're not going to take into account the mystery. We don't live from the mystery. We don't live from the causality that's beyond everything we know. We're sure. We're sure. So when I take up an opinion, right, it's not that the opinion's wrong. It's not even that we should necessarily doubt a position or opinion. It's that that position and opinion must remain open to everything that we cannot directly see and understand at that moment. So yeah, I have a position. I have some pretty strong positions, actually. But what I want to do for myself, to stay sane, and to not other anyone else, is to recognize that that position is on top of, it's, it's just the surface of the ocean. It's my understanding rooted in the surface of the ocean. It's my understanding with the clarity that I can only see as far as my eye of practice can reach. That's as far as I can see. And here's the interesting thing. He said, this is even in true under your own feet. And this is the real pull the rug out, because this is true of who you think you are. You have an idea. I have an idea. But the causes and conditions that result in the emergence of who I am in any given moment, far beyond any capacity of mind to understand or see. So to say definitively that I know exactly who I am is, isn't going to really hold up if we admit the entire world. Who I am is defined largely by what people have told me I, who I am. And I've churned that in my mind, and I've played with it. I'm, I've owned parts of it and disowned others and rejected pieces and thrown others out, but it's still within the surface of the ocean. The palaces that are beneath the ocean, where the bubbles come from, we don't know where that is. We don't. And this isn't, you know, this is the interesting thing about um, Buddhism in its orthodox form doesn't admit any transcendence, right? So. It's the causes and conditions, the parts we can't see, aren't because they're coming from um, some P 
pure realm. They're just causes and conditions we're not aware of, that we can't see, because our bodies only give us so much information. But we experience this as mystery. And we experience this, actually, if we let ourselves really settle into it, we experience this, at least in my experience, as a kind of beauty. As a kind of organicity to all things. And when we don't fight with it, we can listen more deeply. We can understand more deeply. We don't have to make the phenomena, any of the phenomena, human beings or otherwise, that are arising in our perception, not us. We don't have to do that anymore. Now, letting that in often means um, feeling pain. Feeling the pain of you know, choices I think are stupid or ignorant or um, ill-informed or violent. Sadness comes up around that. Um, heartbreak. But these are the things that this letting in again is allowing the bodhisattva heart to swell, to embolden. When we sit zazen, okay, and we've noticed, you know, we talk about it being compassion practice. We sit and we let, we open to our own suffering. That's the first thing we usually do. We open to our own suffering and we feel it and we let that happen and suddenly our capacity to experience suffering is greater. And oddly, we start being able to be more spontaneous. We start uh, to be able to be more okay with the way we express ourselves. We stop battling with ourselves. It's a, mainly because we're not running away from the pain we're feeling anymore. We're not creating these rigid little boxes that I have to stay right there in that box, because if I don't stay in that box of who I think I am, then I'm going to have to feel all of this, and I want to stay over here. But if we let that break down and we let ourselves feel, then we actually become happier. The happiness starts to grow with the capacity to feel suffering. The joy starts to grow with the capacity to feel our pain. The naturalness of being a human being. One way I'm thinking about it more now, because I think so much, um, I'm really feeling in my own practice into the importance of being explicit about reconnecting to the earth as a being, as walking around with that experience, is these are the, are in, we were all indigenous people at one time. This is connecting back into what it is to just be an expression of life and the earth. So, all that said, how do we train? How does that, that just doesn't happen. Zazen's one way. We talked about one way. But um, how does a, um, how do we train for demanding times? You know, there's, the, there's a quote, there's this quote I love, and it has been, um, you've probably seen it. It's, I'm sure it's gone around Facebook or whatever. And um, it's been attributed to um, everybody from Navy SEALs to Prince to, <laughs> to Bruce Lee, 
but, um, and now I'm going to forget, I just realized I'm going to completely blank out on his name. It's a poet from the 7th century BC in Greece. Archilochus, it's like Archilochus or something. I'm totally forgetting. Um, anyway, so the, the quote is, we do not rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. When we're in difficult situations, when we're under duress, we do not rise to, we like to think we're going to rise to the level of our expectations. I love to think that. You know, but we fall to the level of our training. That's what happens. And so, we, we don't necessarily understand in this day and age, we don't necessarily even talk about it this way anymore at least in the, in the very current moment, our spiritual lives as strict training. But they're strict training. It's a strict training. It's not, it's not about feelings. About feeling good or having like a floaty experience or any of that stuff. It's not about that. It, it, let's, let's put it this way. If it's about that, your effectiveness as a human being is not going to change all that much. You're just going to feel good, and then you're going to go back to doing all the same things and acting the same ways as you did before. But you'll have some great memories. This, all this, although this is not a very, um, I don't know if you've been to other Zen centers, this is not a very rigorous Zen center, but all of Zen's rigor is around this idea. That, um, that first we sit down and we bring the attention to the breath and we train the mind into not running all over the place and doing whatever it feels like. That's just first thing. Everything else from there. But the, um, and some of you know this and some of you don't, but the six mm, trainings that we tend to focus on, that are called the paramitas, are generosity. And we take this as a training. You know, not just like, a, it, it's a value, certainly it's a value. And in these times, in times, especially in times when we're in a post-truth era, where, um, where the loudest voice wins, more than the most evidenced argument, evidenced argument gets thrown out and the loud voice wins instead. In those times, it's really important to root ourselves in our values and know what they are. Because it's a battle for values. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a language of power and domination that's happening that is, is about values. And how do we relate to people and human beings and the earth? And is it a relationship that's about utility and domination and exploitation? Or is it a set of values that are around respect and, and um, the recognition of human beings as me and as sacred. You know, so, so generosity is certainly a value, uh, but a training. And so who, one of the great questions to ask in the training is, who, can I, who am I unable to be generous with? I just cannot be generous with that one. And look into why. 
What's underneath the inability to be generous? Because the recognition of dependent co-arising, this, this, this dependent co-arising is not really a value, it's kind of a, just the way things are. But deeply recognizing that is, affects our values because the world and the earth and life itself is inherently generous. If it were not, we'd all be in real trouble. Food wouldn't grow, trees would decide they're annoyed with us and keep the leaves back, you know, maybe all kinds of things that would happen. It would be a difficult, if the, if, if the earth operated like our egos do, we would have ended a long time ago. So, so it's, the practice of generosity is really, again, just aligning us with the reality of a dependently co-arisen world. So we naturally become happier because we're not fighting with that nature. That's not um, so easy to do on its own. You know, it's the opening, it's considered the entry paramita because we have to actually start cultivating generosity for ourselves before we can do a lot of these other things. We don't want to enter into practice with a very violent, strict, rigid, angry relationship to um, cultivation. That's what gives religion a bad name, is that way of doing it. Although I think the word religion is wonderful, that, that it just means to bind oneself to something, right? And we bind ourselves to a, to a practice. And I think that's wonderful. It's just been a political disaster for hundreds of years. But um, generosity, then we go into the second um, paramita, which is sila, which is, uh, I like to translate as behavioral discipline. Sometimes it's called morality. But morality is a very loaded word that, that, that doesn't fully, um, isn't fully equated to this. It's just more the sense of we need to pay attention to our behavior and discipline it. And it's a, this is the one that's really focused at no harm. You know, we have the Buddhist value of no harm. And this paramita is directly coming from that vow. So, how do I speak in the world? How do I act in the world? What's the, what are the jobs I do in the world? You know, these we have the precepts. You know, so, in, in this situation, am I praising myself? One of the precepts is don't praise self at the expense of others. Okay? So, for those who practice the precepts, am I praising myself at the expense of others right now? And so to begin to notice when we, um, because all of this, you know, I, I feel like, and these are huge questions that I'm having for myself right now, how, and I continue and have had for a while, which is how do I respond to the world, how do I respond to a violent world without violence? It's just a very simple question, how do I respond to a violent world without violence? Not that the whole of the world is violent, but there's a great deal of violence. How do I respond to domination? without dominating, you know, without saying, without coming from a dominating sensibility where it's, you're wrong and I'm going to overwhelm your opinion and win. So, and that, those are not easy questions to answer. We each 
as individual people have to feel through what that is for us. It's not like this is the way to do it. We have to sense our own um, impulse to dominate. We have to sense our own impulse to be violent. And, and come to really understand what the causes of that and the conditions of that, of that are and address those conditions. And in doing so, we will become much more skillful in addressing the conditions of that violence and domination in the wider world. We'll understand them. And not only that, we'll become deeply compassionate for the people that we see doing it because we know they're just going through what we went through in a different way. They're just going through something, you know, it looks different for me than it does for them. And maybe it's more egregious, we might say, in some people than others. But, but they were children. They were two-year-old kids. Something happened. So. We move from, so, so attending to that, taking very seriously that, um, watching our behavior. So generosity, behavioral discipline. The behavioral discipline affects the generosity in that it's just not all sloppy and loose. You know, but the generosity affects the behavioral discipline because we don't want that to be rigid and ugly. So then the next thing, this is a very difficult, long process. So the next one is patience. Next value slash discipline is patience. Really hard sometimes. For me, probably the hardest of the six. Um... I have a, at work, I have a mug that just says patience. Because <laughs> I need to just see that every single day, especially when I'm drinking coffee so I can get a lot done. <laughs> but, um, what would it be like to open up to the complexity? of how things come to be. To understand, to take the time to study the histories of how things have come to be. Um, to be very clear on that. So, because once that's the case, then we realize that, you know, there's a, um, this is a long arc. And, um, and if we're not, not just that, in my experience of myself, if I don't come to something with patience that needs to be addressed, I start coming up with not-so-skillful shortcut ways to push them along. And they don't work. They exacerbate the situation. They don't take into account people that need to be heard from for the, it to have a full effect. All of those things get lost. But if I can come to it with patience, then I take the time to actually consider who's not being heard. Uh, not as well as I'd like to, but that's my intention. Who's not being heard? When do we need time for this to happen, et cetera, et cetera. Those things start to get, and then more effective results usually happen. 
and my impatient responses to a world that I consider, or, a, or, an, or an event, or a moment that I consider to be harmful. So it's not just a, you know, it's, this patience business is not just because it's a, it's a loving value, which I think is important, but it's also um, pragmatically a lot smarter we're going to come to the world with a desire for change. Change into a world where we're not um, foolishly harming each other. And then from patience, you don't want to get too, um, you know, and that patience is also, patience goes back to sila. Our own transformational process is slow. You know, we don't turn into who we want to be. We come in here hoping that two years will do it. And do Zen for two years, tick that off, and then I'm going to go on to do what I want to do. Um, no. Years, 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 years. So, um, patience with ourselves also. And then, it takes a long time. So we have to, this whole thing takes a long time. Both in our own transformation and in working for a world that is more loving and peaceful. It takes a long time. And so we need to pay attention. The next one is virya, or energy, or effort, or enthusiasm. And so we, it's not just about building up in, you know, enthusiasm and energy and all of that, although we do pay attention to... Um, and these are not, you know, none of these, I think, I think would be um, incorrect to uh, see the paramitas as some sort of mandate that you have to build. Because... You know, you had men to, to build these qualities because these qualities are actually who you are already. It's just a matter of noticing when they're not present and understanding the conditions for their lack of presence. So now we're looking at energy, and so some people's energy are, I can't do this, I'm just going to lay on the couch for years, this is too much, I'm not going to turn on the TV, and I'm just going to read novels. That's for some people, that's their energy. Their energy goes that way. For some people, their energy goes that way. I'm going to do everything now. I'm going to be 18 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to be responding. And then they collapse under an abundance of cortisol and stress and can't do anything. So how do we pay attention to our energy? How do we really deeply... And this is an interesting thing. This was a shift for me in a big way, is how do I treat my own energy as a moral, as a moral area, as a moral engagement? Am I being morally responsible when I burn myself out or when I don't you know, um, take care of my body? Because I think we're so trained to have a relationship to our body as a utility. 
I'm just going to use it to get done the things I think I need to get done. That a loving and moral relationship to it is just not something we normally do. But if we can't frame our own being that way, if we can't take seriously the care of our own being, how in the world are we going to do that for people who piss us off? It's going to be almost impossible. And then um, from energy, we go into what's usually translated as meditation, jhana. The root ja, there's so many words that get translated as meditation, but in this case, the word ja, uh, the root ja and jhana is seeing. It's related to seeing, so seeing clearly. Sometimes the word samadhi is used, and, and samadhi is, is more like gathering the mind into concentration. But these two things are related. In Buddhist meditation, these are deeply related. One has to gather the mind in order to be able to see. And so when we talk about shamatha practice, which is what everybody learns when they first come here, which is to bring your attention to the breath over and over and over and over again so that you're not flying all over the place, that is gathering the mind so that we can actually bring it together in a way that it can see and attend to itself. But um, seeing sometimes in Vipassana practice is talked about this way, certainly, which is about discernment. But um, but also, in our case, this jhana practice that's related to seeing, it's also not just gathering the mind into stillness, but beginning to be able to see the way the mind is conditioned. Both the way the mind is conditioned and what the nature of mind is itself. What is the mind? What is this thing that actually results in all of my actions? That interprets my reality and results in all my responses to it. What is it? It's very interesting that we actually go through life, that is an option to go through life with paying no attention to that. Like just paying no attention to it. When it's, when it's literally everything that we experience and do. So, to stop and begin to look at those structures and understand them. This is key to the training. None of the rest work, none of the rest. It's very hard to discipline one's behavior without a capacity to gather and look at the mind. It's very hard to even notice when we're not being generous in deep ways without doing this. This builds up that capacity. Also, I would, I would argue that Zazen itself is one of the deepest expressions of generosity to ourselves we can ever do to actually sit down and give this one space to be who I am right now without anything getting in the way except whatever this is putting in the way. You know? And then we get to see that, and we get to know, and we get to build compassion for that, and then we get to free ourselves. Well, we don't free ourselves. Freedom just happens. But um, so there's that. So there's Zazen. So these, so far, 
in our way of thinking about this. And, and I was, you know, I was actually wondering, I was like, okay, is this just going to be a talk about what we do with bodhisattvas and is it really relevant at all to what's going on? But it's actually pretty relevant. <laughs> because, because when I look at the ways that I don't feel I'm skillful within this larger context, or I'm not going to make it, or uh, whatever it is, it comes back to these, some version of these trainings. You know, it's very close. And then the, the, the final one is um, prajna, or wisdom. Now what's really in, in important about this notion of wisdom is it's not, although certainly there's a part of it that has to do with the study of the way the mind is. Prajna comes from all of the, uh, all of the practices that are before. It arises from the insights and embodiment of all the practices that, that come before in the paramitas. But the pra and prajna, jna is related to no in the Indo-European roots, and pra to pre. So there's, it's, it's a knowing that is before, it's, it's a before knowing, okay? Before knowing in that it is arising from a space that is um, not egoic, not attached to self, not attached to the knower who needs to know. It's not that knowing. You know? And so prajna is often... Um, you see all through the koans in Zen literature these moments where somebody's struck or yelled at or asked a question or whatever, and the, the response needs to be twofold. What's being looked for in all of those exchanges is a twofold response. Usually, one is um, that it's coming from prajna, not from ego, and the other is that it's coming from a compassionate uh, gesture to relieve suffering in a moment. So, so this, you know, what to do. This has a lot to, 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 when we ask the question, what to do. Usually we ask that question, what do I do when the world goes in a way that I think is um, terrorizing what I believe is, is deeply necessary for healing the world and for sustaining the world. And, um, and we want to start figuring it out from the intellectual knowing space, right? We want A, B, C, and D. But this, this way of looking at it is a little bit different because we can't necessarily know what the most skillful response is in a situation that we're not in yet. We can't know. We can create, and I'm sure a few people in the room have done this, we can create massive scenarios for what's going to happen. You know? And we'll be right about some of them. We will be right. But from that space, it's very difficult to know how to respond. Because we're not, the body's not in that space. There's no body there. That's just like the intellect doing this disembodied calculation, which is completely and totally rooted only in our egoic conditioning at that moment. We're coming from 
the circle that only reaches as far as the eye of practice. We're just staying in the loop. Okay, this is, the, this is the thing that I'm totally terrified of. This is how I know to respond to the thing I'm totally terrified of. The same way I did it last time. When I was terrified of something and I responded to it. I'm just going to keep doing that same thing in different situations until I'm dead. So to actually open, I know. <laughs> <laughs> To open, to train ourselves to open to something that isn't that loop. You know, that's, that's not coming from that loop. It will inform that loop. It will open it up. It will give new information. New thoughts will come up. And they will, you know, they will be thoughts that are also coming from conditioning, from a conditioned reality, but not the one that is just inside the loop. So, um, so this prajna, this is opening up to this. This is a very um, scary thing to do at first because it's going to completely destabilize all the ways we think we know how to do things. You don't get notes in the prajna world. You just show up. You show up to a moment and you fall to the level of your training. That's what we do again and again and again. And the training is in the, the training is of the body. When we're training ourselves in generosity, I mean, yeah, we have an intellectual understanding of generosity and we talk to ourselves about it, but we're training a generous body. And in moral discipline, we're training an upright body. And we're training a patient body. There was um, Paul Haller, who's a teacher in San Francisco, he said to me one time something that, that, um, that really stuck with me in a dogosan. He said, until insight affects the way you set down a teacup, it doesn't matter. Until insight, and I would add to that, until insight affects the way you treat every other human beings. doesn't matter. You can have the biggest blood insight in the world in Zazen, and if you're still going around treating everybody like an asshole, then who cares? <laughs> you know, who cares? It, it, at that point, actually what's happened is that insight became a memory that you're grasping. And the insight was not allowed to settle into the body and start to affect who we are. You know, and that's the thing. And the only way to let the insight settle into the body is to release it. Let it go. It can rise up. Oh, I remember that insight. That's good. Actually, I'm not doing what's in line with that insight right now. And we remember. And it's important to remember. But... Um, but to let it go so that it can actually become who we are. So I'm coming to 12.20. I'll stop. And we'll have a discussion or comments or questions. But, but in many ways, in many ways, nothing 
in many ways, a great deal has changed. You know, in many ways, nothing has changed. What has changed, I think, is that for those who were able to have, this is one way things have changed. There are many ways. One way things have changed is for those who were able to not include certain aspects of our national reality in their lives, don't get to do that anymore. That's done. For some people, they've had to include those realities for quite a long time. And so for them, less has changed, although still things have changed. But for some of us now, suddenly the self and the level of suffering that needs to be included in who we think we are just got a little bit bigger. And the questions that we're asking ourselves, I think, to some degree are related to what do I do with the more suffering? What do I do with the more potentiality of suffering? What do I do with that? Train. Train to be a being that can respond skillfully to suffering. That is the only thing we can do. You know, it reminds me of a story. For some reason, this story came up that was in a book by Claude Anshin Thomas, who's a Zen teacher who was a who was a, um, a chopper gunner in Vietnam. And he went on a walking meditation. I mean, uh, yeah, a walking meditation, but he went from, I think, Auschwitz all the way to Vietnam. He walked. And he was in um, Serbia during the war. And he was speaking to this one man who, I can't remember which, I can't remember which side the man was on and which he wasn't, but, but he was... Um, he had been shot on the other side, and the opposition's doctors brought him back. And now he was back home, and he was talking with Anshin, and Anshin was saying, you know, he was going on about how evil the other side was, how evil the other side was. And all Anshin did was he would say, he was shot in the arm. All Anshin did was say, well, what about that arm? That's it. What about that arm? And then eventually the guy had to say, yeah, not all of them. And he slowly gave way. So this, you know, there may be ways in that aren't about clubbing people over the head with our view. But that very gently pokes holes in their own. That points to what's under the surface of the ocean. Can we point to what's under the surface of the ocean without trying to completely replace their ocean? Because that is not going to happen. <laughs> There's not going to be a switch out. So, and, and again, I think this is where training is so important because we can't prefigure what that is going to be. You know, Anshin didn't walk in going, if this happens, I'm going to say this. You know, he just was really deeply present, and the opportunity, to arose, uh, opportunity arose to just gently point something out again and again and again, and it broke through. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.